our great Lord Jesus, thank you that you intercede. You interpose for us before a holy God. And you even come to intercede in the midst of our own hearts and our mind, our affections and our attitudes, our trials and our needs. And you fight for us. Thank you that your ways are not a dead end, but they are life and truth. Thank you that you do not abandon us, having saved us. Now your work is glorious, and you're making a name for yourself through your broken, imperfect people. So today, have your way here. Draw your people close today. Lord God, do your work in their hearts and our hearts. We give you this time for your glory, and to that end, in Christ's name, amen. What did Israel expect coming out of Egypt? They were leaving their hard labor. They were leaving the oppression of slavery. But were their troubles all behind them? Were their days of adversity finished? Well, you know the answer if you've been with us as we walk through these passages in Exodus. As we come upon Exodus... I'm going to do that so you can find me. Um, As we come upon Exodus chapters 15... Through 18, we find here a delivered people now being trained, now being raised up to know their God, to live with Him, and to reveal Him to others. And their training means growing them, even through battle. The suffering that God Himself had attended for them, the trials which He had purposed for them after their deliverance, He has purposed these. For his glory and their good. We come to the middle of Exodus 17 after a chapter and two halves of Israel's grumbling and Yahweh's provision. Now we move into a different threat. We have now a marauding army. Last time God's people faced an army in Exodus, he took the field. Ha, that sure is nice. The Egyptians were routed. And they never lifted a sword. This time, though, they will take up arms. And they will enter the warfare. And yet still, Yahweh is teaching them. The Lord is your protector as you fight against enemy assaults. The Lord is your protector. He taught the Exodus generation. He, in writing this, giving this to them, taught the Deuteronomy generation. And he is so also teaching us today. The Lord is your protector as you fight against enemy assaults. Today, we see his watchful care over the battle. One of our women's studies just recently took up spiritual battle here this fall. Our passage today would apply to that same warfare. Pick up with me in Exodus 17, and we will start in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. That's where we left them last week with the issue of the need for water and water from the rock. And fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out. Fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did, as Moses told him, and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed, and when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. 
But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and he named it, the Lord is my banner. And he said, the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Pause there. The Lord is your protector as you fight against enemy assaults. First, I want you to notice in verse 8, enemies will assault you. Enemies will assault you. These are the first physical enemies that the nation of Israel are going to come up against since leaving Egypt a couple of months ago. The Amalekites are a people descended from Esau, Genesis 36 gives the lineage there. They will become, from this moment forward, a perennial foe, a thorn in the side of the nation of Israel that they will not be rid of for a very, very long time. The Amalekites, in fact, will be the ones who, in part, will defeat Israel on the edge of the promised land there at Hormah, and therefore, in so doing, bring about the, the turning back of the nation of Israel for 40 years to wander under judgment in the wilderness. The Amalekites will raid them in the land throughout the time of Judges, even until the time of Hezekiah, and through the descendants of the Amalekites, even in exile in Babylon, in the time of Esther, the Amalekites will haunt their steps. And so it is with you, believer. You have an enemy being named by the name of Christ, who haunts your steps. There is, first and foremost, a struggle for each and every one of us, a struggle with our own sin that we will be fighting until the day we die. There is also a grief for each and every one of us that is naturally a part of life here in a broken and fallen world. But here in our passage this morning, what we have is a sentient opponent one who actively seeks our ruin. Deuteronomy 25, by the way, and I think this would be worth jotting down because the connection is important enough. Deuteronomy 25 records this event. The children who are there in Exodus 17 will have it recited back to them. And what we have in the record of this event is it tells us something that we wouldn't know from this text, but something that all of those, even in the Exodus generation, would themselves have already known. That is, that the Amalekites are an enemy who, who prey upon the weak. Listen to Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 and 18. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked, you, and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Huh. What was the Amalekites' plan? These people who have traveled, who have, who have known thirst and want of food at different times, these people who have been marked by grumbling and at times great strife, they are already weak and it's hard. And, and they're traveling people. They're not home. They have no defenses. And some of those, huh, they think in their diabolical reasoning, who get separated from the herd, 
who fall behind and straggle because they're particularly faint and particularly weak. Let's, uh, let's pick those off. What do we know about the enemy of our souls? First Peter says that Satan prowls, that he watches and stalks and seeks, and that he devours. When you are weak and you straggle away from the pack, then you are ripe for assault, right? To discontinue gathering with the people of God to stop coming to church, does that mean that you have tubed it in your faith and you are going to be destroyed? No, but I'll tell you, it's a whole lot easier to stay safe if you're in the midst of the pack. You can typically find those who choose to wander away and who actively disregard fellowship and constant Christian community. It's only a matter of time, sadly, more often than not, because these are ripe for assault. But let the attack come, and it will. Enemies will assault you, but let the attack come while you are in the word, while you are in community, while you are in worship. While you are in amongst God's people. And there you have great protection and help. Because your adversary, the devil, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus himself has said, enemies will assault you. Next, notice, not only will enemies assault you, but you will have to fight. You will have to fight. Verse 9, so Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. This is different than what happened the last time there was an army against them, right? They didn't have to fight then. Here, in fact, it's a little bit staggering. I was expecting if I would have read all the way up to Exodus 17.9 that there would have been a little more context that would have informed this. No, there's not. This is it. An enemy comes, boom. Hey, get Joshua, get people, go fight. Where did that come from? This is the first time that we get to meet Joshua in the Bible, by the way. And fascinatingly, he is introduced as one who needs no introduction. And Moses called Joshua. Who? Of course, that guy. You know he will become the leader of the nation. What does does Moses then direct him? He says here in verse 9, choose and then go fight. They didn't have to fight against the Egyptians. This is new. There's not even record of prayer. There's not even record of pause and consideration. I don't think that the absence of such things mean that, means that Moses is out of line or isn't in the will of God. Um, in this case, I think the rest of the passage demonstrates that he absolutely is. But the, the writing here and the Spirit of God didn't feel the need to elaborate on that for us. What we are told is that Joshua is going to have to go choose, choose men to go fight. Why? This is a great reminder of the scenario here. Why does he have to choose men to go fight? Can't you just blow the horn and the army will show up, right? Isn't that how it works? Except, do they have an army? They're a rabble of slaves. Do they know anything about um, marching out in military campaign? Almost certainly not. 
In fact, Exodus 13, 17, if you'll remember when Yahweh leads them up by the pillar of fire cloud, it says he does not lead them by the way of the Philistines because he, the, Yahweh knows that the people would lose heart, likely because the way of the Philistines is a well-traveled route that has Philistine outposts, and they would run into enemies and armies along the way. And yet the Lord has specifically led them here to this battle, all in his good time, all in his perfect provision, brothers and sisters, spiritual battle happens only at the Lord's behest, in his time, for his purpose, to his degree. They are led here. But Joshua will have to go through the ranks of the men, and he will have to choose amongst these rabble of slaves. What we have here is not a marching army. Instead, we have weary travelers, and they're heading to their new home. They're on their way, literally, to the promised land, but they're not there yet. I mean, these are, these are people of U-Hauls and, and suitcases, right? And, and uh, toolies, right? That's who these people are. And yet the fight will come to them. The enemy doesn't wait until you're good and settled, you know? A until you have your defenses built up. In fact, he <laughs> likes to attack the faint and the weak and the distracted and those who are longing for somewhere else. And he says, oh, no, right here. Right here is where the battle is going to be pitched. It will come to you. You'll have to fight. Spiritual battle excludes no one. We are traveling pilgrims, and we will endure many attacks in our long progress. Special apologies to John Bunyan. This is why we are commanded. Be strong in the Lord. Take up the full armor of God because you know not the day or the time of the attack, right? Enemies will assault you. You will have to fight. But now see, see his watchful care over the battle. The Lord is our protector as you and I fight enemy assaults. Read with me again, starting in verse 10. Joshua did as Moses told him fought against Amalek, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up, Israel prevailed. When he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took stone, they put it under him, he sat on it, Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, one on the other. Thus, his hands were steady. Love the fact that the word there comes from the Hebrew word, the word for steady, the Hebrew word emetz. It's where we... Uh, we usually have it translated as faithful. Uh, God is faithful, chesed ba'emet, by the way, loving and true or loving and faithful. Um, the only time here, um, commentators have said, I didn't read every Hebrew word in the Bible, the only time that this word is um, used in a non-moral sense, um, but it clearly has moral overtones. Moses' hands were faithful, steady, solid until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Third, I want you to notice in our passage today that Yahweh fights for you as you fight. The Israelites, unlike with the Egyptians uh, coming against them, are going to have to fight this battle. It's not going to be taken care of for them. They will have to fight, but the profound encouragement and the revelation of Yahweh at this moment to his people is as you fight, it will be me fighting for you. 
we understand very clearly from the passage that what happens on the mountain is far more important than what happens on the field. What happens on the mountain determines what happens in the battlefield, right? How much insight and detail and blow for blow are we given of Joshua and the people and the Amalekites out on the battlefield? None, except sometimes good, sometimes bad. That's it. That's all it has to say. We have three verses line upon line of what really mattered, what set the battle, and that was Yahweh fighting for his people. Moses' hands are the focus of this passage. Six times his hands are mentioned, which begs the question, well, then what is it that we are supposed to notice? What is it that's in his hand? Look again at verse 9. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. There's the point. Yahweh is fighting for his people. The staff of God, which so many times has been the evidence of his presence and his power and the exercise of his authority and his wondrous works, is now again going to be that same thing, but in a very subtle way, if you will. There's not going to be lightning bolts flying out of the staff. Uh, There's not going to be some flood of water washing away the Amalekite army. That had been super convenient. One day the Lord will lift up his standard and come in like a flood and wipe out his enemies. But until that day, you have to fight. But as you fight, he fights. He fights for you. Moses holding up the staff of God. Some have called this prayer. And I don't think that's inappropriate, but I'm not sure that that's exactly the meaning. Some have called this magic. That's clearly not the case. Some have called this the rallying point of the people, the thought being that they down in the valley were to look and see Moses standing upon the hill with the staff raised and looking to it, seeing and refocusing and their perspective knowing that God was fighting for them would be stirred. I'm okay with that. But I don't think we really have to guess at any of those as the point. The point of the passage is clear because we know what the staff of God is and does. The battle is the Lord's and he fights. And within that, Moses, surely then, with his faithful hands, through help, is making an appeal, an appeal to Yahweh. Fight for your people by the staff which you have used, Lord God. Fight for your people. Here he is inviting Yahweh to exert, once again, his mighty power on behalf of his beleaguered and wandering people. And you know what he does, doesn't he? He fights For them. Later, this will be recorded. We're told in verse 14 that Moses is commanded to record it. And then after that, it will be rehearsed. First, probably in the ears, certainly in the ears of Joshua, probably uh, in some official company of people, some official sense. Moses probably recites this back to Joshua at some point, shortly before or after he takes command. But whenever it is read and rehearsed throughout the the years for this generation, they are to be reminded that God is their help. God is the one who fights for them. By the way, to whom is the book of Exodus written? You already know because I've said it several times the last few weeks. The Deuteronomy generation. That's what I call them for a short, shorthand. The Deuteronomy generation. By the way, do you think that generation needed this? The Deuteronomy generation is going to become the Joshua generation, and what are they going to do? 
they're going to have to go in and fight a whole lot of battles, right? And every step of the way, the issue will be one and one only. Who fights for you? When they do it their way, they lose because the enemy is stronger than them. When they do it God's way, they prevail because God is stronger than their enemy. And so it is with you. So it is for me. Yahweh will be your triumph and protector as you fight. So two, two takeaways I would encourage us with this morning. First then, know that and petition his power. Petition his power through prayer, of course. This is a great week, if there's ever been a good one, to ask yourself, how important is prayer in my daily life? Is prayer for you optional? Or is it absolutely necessary? Is prayer for me something I do when it's convenient? Or do I make it a priority? Is prayer for you a joyful privilege? Or is it an unwelcome duty? How important is prayer in your daily life? Petition is power through prayers, consistency, and priority in your own life. Also, petition is power through humble and holy lives. Through humble and holy lives. Second Timothy chapter 3 speaks of men who, and he says they will be prevalent in the last days, speaks of men who, quote, hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. That little phrase scares me to death. Because I hold to a form of godliness. I get paid to hold to a form of godliness. I do it professionally. And my fear is that I would live a life that would look back and be seen as having denied its power. What is the connection? Godliness is a means to supernatural and spiritual power. Let us not be a people that hold to a form but have no reality. Spiritual power in our lives comes because Yahweh fights for you and for me as we fight. The same connection, by the way, of power and holiness is even found in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's spoken of him in Hebrews 7 in his humanity as he walked the face of the earth. The author of Hebrews says something that's shocking because we think of Jesus like, oh yeah, he's God and he's perfect and whatever. But viewed in terms of his humanity, speaking of how he is greater, the author of Hebrews says this, that, that he became what he was through the power of an indestructible life. Isn't that a great phrase? I mean, think about it. The person who has never sinned, has never dishonored God, has always done perfectly, he's unstoppable. Oh, you can kill him, sure. You can torture him, you can slander him, you can beat him, accuse him, take away his job, make his hunger, hunger and thirst, all you want. But he has the power of an indestructible life. And he's immortal so long as God wants him alive. Same connection. Prayer and humble and holy lives are how we petition his power so that as we fight, and we will, that he will fight for us. Also, I'd encourage you, find willing friends. Bond with willing friends. You know what I love about this passage? Nobody is going to come away from the battle here with the Amalekites 
and say, you know what, Woo, we couldn't do it, but man, we're so glad for Moses because Moses was strong for us. Moses made us win, right? No, Moses was a weakling. Moses needed help. And Aaron and her had to hold up his hands. They had to give him a place to sit down. Moses is not a spring chicken at this point in his life. And that's okay. Because he had some willing friends. And his hands were faithful. How are your hands going to be faithful? I would subscribe that we need some willing friends that we should find and bond with. Prayer partners and prayer circles may come and go in your life. If you've never been a part of one, maybe it's a good time to consider finding one, committing to one, creating one. They tend to go in waves in our life. But believers are not only meant to be praying people, but people praying together. And Aaron and her are a picture of that here for Moses. Maybe... um, A simple application might be at your next small group meeting or ladies gathering or men's breakfast or whatever. Or maybe you need to plan a week in advance and chat with the leader. Don't come in and, you know, run the show and say, hey, can we just commit our entire time to pray together? Can we just do that? And maybe you already do that from time to time. Great. I hope you do. And certainly you pray at times in the midst of your gatherings. But a well-led prayer meeting can be utterly transforming. It it, it can be a a turnaround point in our lives when we gather with brothers and sisters and do that, right? Yahweh fights for you as you fight. So fight in prayer through holy living and with the fellowship of godly friends. Last encouragement then this morning in the Lord, your protector, as he is with you when the enemy assaults, is that you wrestle under his banner as you fight. He fights for you as you fight. That's great encouragement. But there's another aspect, which is very much like it, but not exactly the same. You wrestle under his banner as you fight. 14, the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, the Lord is my banner. Moses was to make sure that Joshua, the future leader of the nation, would never forget this event. And you're thinking, I kind of don't think he's going to not remember. I mean, he's the general out there in the field. And he could say, Moses, um, I kind of didn't have the freedom to just stare up on the mountain all the time. But I can tell when your hands sank. I can tell you exactly the moments when they sank. And I know when your hands lifted again because I could see the tide turn. I don't think he's going to be quick to forget that. But even so, not only for Joshua's sake, but for the nation, Moses builds an altar. Just like Noah and Abram and Jacob and the other patriarchs before him had done, Moses builds an altar, and then he names it Yahweh Nisi. The Lord is my banner. That's what he calls it. What is the lesson for this Exodus generation? And when it is rehearsed for the Deuteronomy generation, what is the lesson? Remember the way that he has warred as you have wrestled. Because he is the power over you, and he is the power over the battle. 
That's the picture here. The battle takes place in the valley, and there's a, a banner over it. It's the banner of God himself. He is the banner in that place. Whatever fight you have this week for faith or for faithfulness, the Lord is the banner over that. He's, he's Lord over the battlefield. He's, he's Lord over the enemies. He's Lord over you. He's Lord over all of it. And what a great encouragement that is to know. He is the power over you and the battle. He is also the adversary of those who, who assault his own. He himself is the adversary of those who assault his own. Um, verse 16 is uh, super cryptic in the Hebrew. The NAS reads this way, and he said, The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. If you're reading from the ESV, you're going to see a more literal translation, and it's helpful in this case. A hand against or a hand upon the throne of Yahweh. So right there in 16 where it says, And he said, The Lord has sworn. The words, the Lord has sworn, and by the way, if you've got the NAS, there's a little note sends you to the margin and gives those literal words. A hand upon the throne of Yahweh. Okay, that's not too hard. That's what it says. The question is, what in the world does it mean? And to make it simple this morning and quick, I'll just boil it down to this. The question is, whose hand? A hand upon or toward or against the throne of the Lord. Is it the hand of Moses? Then it's the hand of Moses upon the throne of the Lord. It is speaking of Moses interceding for the people. And that's legitimate from the context. It, it absolutely could be that. It could be the hand of Yahweh. The hand of Yahweh toward the throne of the Lord. That sounds like a little bit of a strange thing because why would Yahweh put his hand towards his own throne? Except for, this is not an unusual phrase for the Lord to raise his hand in sort of swearing an oath. That's why the NAS has interpreted the phrase, a hand toward the throne of the Lord, and it said, and the Lord swore. Does that make sense? I hope you get it. If not, you'll be fine if you don't. Or is it the Amalekites? I think all three work, but I think the last is my favorite and probably the best understanding. Um, I won't die for it. But I do think it's probably the Amalekites, a hand against the throne of the Lord. I think it's a because statement. And he said, because a hand against the throne of the Lord, and then the rest of the verse recites, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. What's the point there? That God is the adversary of those who are the adversary of his own. Those who assault his own, God himself, Yahweh says, fine, you deal with me if that's how you want this. And brother or sister, if you follow Christ, this is a beautiful truth, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul writes. Where, where could Paul have learned this idea? Remember him killing Christians? You remember him on the way to do some more murder? You remember the bright light. You remember the voice. And you remember what the voice said. Saul, Saul, why are you 
persecuting me. I don't remember Saul trying to stone God in heaven. But Saul fought against those who were his own. And Jesus said, you just picked a fight. Huh. Be encouraged, brother and sister. Be encouraged because you will be attacked and you will have to fight. But you wrestle under his banner and he fights against the enemy of his children. We're going to take communion together this morning and then once again rejoice and worship in song. Doing things a little differently this morning just for fun. As you come to communion, friend, if you are here and you have never placed your trust in Christ, take this opportunity not to take these elements or feel like you have to be a part of this ceremony, but rather take this opportunity to talk to God. Take this opportunity this morning to understand there are only two sides in the battle. There are no people in the middle. There are those who follow the world's ways and their own ways, and they are enemies of God, whether they are conscious of it or not. And there are those who are God's, not because they're better, but because they're weaker, because they're needier, and because they've realized their need to come to him. And we would pray that you would come to know his grace because he's calling you today and he would want to fight for you. So friend, if that is you, take this opportunity to just speak with the Lord, invite him to reveal himself to you, and consider what is he teaching you? How would he have you respond to him? Brothers and sisters, as we take the reminder of Christ's sacrifice this morning in remembrance of his death and resurrection and ascension, and now because he is ascended, where is he? Scripture says he's seated at the right hand of God. What is he doing there? Interceding for us. He now lives to intercede for us in the battle. What happened with Moses in our passage this morning? He was an intercessor. And thank God that he was. And thank God that Aaron and her were there to help. But you know what? How was Moses' intercession? Was it perfect? It wasn't. How about our intercessor? How is the intercession for us? Listen to Hebrews 7, verse 25. Therefore, Christ is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You want to know whose hands are steady? You want to know whose hands are faithful? The Lord Jesus Christ, your intercessor, brother or sister, he never weakens and he never wanes. He never sleeps and he never tires. Praise God. This morning, as you come to take communion, think on Christ who held up his hands perfectly, who is steady in his intercession for you and for me, even when I wander, even when I lie, even when I go the way of the world. He intercedes and he fights. Thank him this morning for his watchful care over you, for his fighting for you, and for the fact that the entire battle takes place underneath his banner. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, our God, thank you that you have given Christ your son the perfect intercessor. and He is eminently faithful. We take these elements now, gladly your children receiving your power on our behalf, your fight on our behalf. Would you pursue us? 
Would you draw us back and would you make it beautiful again for us to pursue holy living and prayerful lives that depend upon you so that we might be a people. Whatever suffering you call us to, whatever fight you have planned for us, that you will be the one who's fighting over us. This we ask in Christ's name as we take these elements. Amen.